Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In our last episode, we laid the theological foundation for a new covenant doctrine. That is the idea that Christ fulfilled the law and ratified the new covenant, which opened up a new way of relating to God apart from obedience to Torah. Now we will discuss a number of texts that sometimes confuse Christians into thinking the law is still in effect today. We'll cover Jesus' obedience to Torah, several scriptures that imply Torah is forever, the Sabbath's association with creation, and a number of prophecies that mention keeping aspects of the law in the kingdom. Although I realize these are not all of the texts and strategies that Torah-observant Christians use to make their case, these are some of the significant ones. Here now is Theology, Part 24, Challenging the New Covenant. The doctrine is simply that, as we understand it, is because of Christ's obedient life, atoning death, and justificatory resurrection. All right, that's a little snobby. should probably just be justifying resurrection. He has opened up a new way of relating to God via the new covenant. Thus, the old covenant, the law of Moses, is obsolete for both Jews and Gentiles. And I, I chose that word obsolete on the basis of some of the, this one text in Hebrews and the translation I have for that, which said uh, that it's because there's a new way or a new priesthood, that it's the old way is obsolete. So these, these would be verses that are sometimes used by folks to, uh, to show that the law is still in effect. So Hebrews 4.15 is a text that says that Jesus never sinned. And you're thinking, well, why in the world is that relevant? What I had to do for this one, as I often do, is I had to look at other people and what they said about it because... I'm not as practiced at uh, knowing what all the difficult texts are on this one. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in the context of Jesus' life, sinless means he kept the law. Almost, almost by definition. Yeah, or by definition. In a Torah-observant period... Sinless means you kept the law. So then, what's the response? Just because Jesus kept the law doesn't mean we should continue to keep it, especially if his whole mission was to open a new way to relate us to God. And what I, what I think of here is the beginning point of Torah, which we can observe in the incident in Numbers 15, 32, with the guy who picked up sticks. So here we have the people are in the wilderness. They have received the law at this point, or at least some portion of it, certainly the Sabbath aspect of it. And this guy is picking up sticks. This is Numbers 15:32. It says, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. They're like, what do we do with this guy? He's breaking the Sabbath. These people don't understand the Sabbath. They just have received the Sabbath. That's the Ten Commandments. And now they have this guy and they don't know what to do with him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. My point is this. It's, I realize it's probably not clear what my point is. So, you have you have creation itself. If this is like a timeline, okay, with time going that way to the right, we have creation, and whatever is in place there, we have the uh, certainly the fall, and then we have we have Sinai. Sinai is the mountain on which the the law or the Torah or the covenant was cut or given uh, by God through Moses to the Israelites, okay? And then you have this little incident, which, which is happening like right about here. You have Numbers 15, 
where this guy is gathering sticks. He's already received the covenant that now on the, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work and gather sticks and whatnot, and this guy's breaking it. So the question is, what do we do with him? They don't know. So they ask God. God says to stone him. Then over here, we have the cross, which sets up the new covenant or ratifies the new covenant. So the way I'm looking at it then is that you have an age of Torah where you have a beginning and you have an end of it where it is the way God has chosen to relate to His people. Now the understanding of covenant is that it's not just a set of principles or rules, but it is in fact it's a, in fact a way that you can relate to God. It's a way that God is going, has agreed to relate to you and the way that he, you have agreed to relate to God. And what I mean by that is if you th think of like, for example, a marriage covenant. You enter into a marriage covenant like Josiah. He got married. So in, in his agreement with his wife, there were certain things he said. What, like what kinds of rules did you impose upon yourself? Not going to commit adultery. He's not going to sleep with other people, uh, male or female, uh, no. Roman or Gentile, yeah, yeah. or Jewish. He's not going to hurt her. I will not He's not going to divorce her. That's, that's a very minimal set. I mean, do you think you're going to love her at all, or is that <laughs> or cherish, sustain? These are the words we used to use. What, what do they use in Canada? Yeah, all those words. Those, yeah. Those, 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 He's a tr I mean, this is obviously not in the, in the Bible, the, the wedding ceremony. You bound yourself to her, and you have agreed to relate to her with those restrictions in mind. And then she agreed to you the same. And because of those rules, those boundaries, those restrictions, you have freedom within the covenant to be vulnerable. Freedom within that covenant to be who you really are and not to put up a front like you do when you're dating. Nobody smells as good as they do when they're dating, right? In real life, you don't actually smell like that. You, you, you make it look, you make it appear, you, you, in a sense, you're deceiving the other person, but they know you're deceiving them, and they're deceiving you too, and everybody's just okay with it. So my point is, this is, this is a, a defined period where God said, I'm going to relate to the people a certain way, and he, he enumerated the covenant requirements, and then he enumerated the blessings and the curses. So the, the requirements are, like the, for example, the Ten Commandments would be the basic requirements. And then um, the other 603, <laughs> whatever, however many there are. And then uh, there were the blessing, blessings and the curses. And so if you, if you abided by what God said. If the people abide, it's usually corporate, if the people abide by what God said, then they are going to be blessed. And if they don't, then they're going to suffer these curses. And he had the people say the curses on Mount Gerizim, and no, the blessings on Mount Gerizim, and the curses on Mount Ebal. Do you remember this? Did you read the Old Testament? Yeah, they shout back and forth. Yeah, he remembers it. So the idea is that that is the, the uh, covenant that is set up and that it has a beginning point, and as far as, as far as I understand it, it has an end point when the new covenant is ratified. And the new covenant is a new way to relate to God, and it's through Christ rather than through the old identity markers that labeled you in a covenant relationship with God, namely circumcision and probably some food laws. All right, now, when Jesus spoke on this, he said, and this is another important text, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. He said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So this is a very strong statement, wouldn't you say? On the one hand, it says that Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law. Instead, he came to fulfill it. Uh, but then there is this idea that a cessation might be in, in view in verse 18 where he says, until all is accomplished. 
So during his lifetime, Jesus is keeping every dot, every... If you've ever seen Hebrew, there are all these dots, right? And then uh, the iota is probably a yod. It's this little... Yeah, but the equivalent. Yeah, it'd be the equivalent. So it's just basically a Y in English. So you have like Hebrew letters. It's it's a tiny letter. It's just not a big letter. It's just like a little apostrophe, basically. Okay. So Jesus is saying, not even the smallest vowel or consonant is going to drop out until all is accomplished. But the implication is that once it is accomplished, you could interpret this as it will pass away. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So sometimes people have said Jesus is teaching that he did not come to abolish the law. He practiced the law. The law is still in effect today. We grant that Jesus did not come, and in his ministry, his purpose was not to defy or challenge the law. His purpose was to fulfill the law, was to keep the law, and he kept the law as the quintessential Israelite, fulfilling the law. And as a result of that, bringing that to an end. So, the analogy that N.T. Wright uses on this is of booster rockets. Because sometimes Christians, at least from the time of Martin Luther forward, have said that the law was bad, and it's a burden and a straitjacket, and it, it's a negative principle that shows you your sin. That God's purpose for the law was solely to show you that you're a worthless maggot, incapable of keeping the law, okay? And uh, so the law, in a sense, is a mirror to show you how pathetic you are morally. And so this is what we call the old perspective on Paul. Then the new perspective on Paul, which more scholars are, are familiar with in teaching today, is that actually the law was a good thing. And N.T. Wright's a proponent of the new perspective. The law was a good thing, but it has now fulfilled its purpose. And that's like booster rockets on a Falcon Heavy. Right? You guys saw that one? Elon Musk launched the Falcon Heavy. It had three booster rockets on it. The booster rockets get it up into space, and then they detach, and they fall back to the Earth. Now, does anybody say that booster rocket is bad or something, there's something wrong with it? No. It's fulfilled its purpose. It got us into space. And so we have this text, like in Galatians 3.24, where it says, So then the law was your guardian, our guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so this is this booster rocket analogy. The law was good, it was holy, it was from God, it was how He chose to relate to His people, but now that it has gotten us to Christ, we are now relating to God through Christ and through what He has accomplished, rather than through the law as the, uh, the, the main way of relating to God. Then I have an, one more on this same vein here, Luke 16, 16, 16, and 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for a heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. I think the implication here is until Jesus finishes his work. So long as he was in his ministry, so long as that was the situation, Nothing could invalidate the law. Now, as with the other difficult texts, I don't have time here to establish the perspective, even though I'm really, I really desire to, uh, to establish a perspective I'm assuming here, right? which is very awkward for, because I haven't established it, I'm just assuming it, and I know you disagree. But um, you know, that's, that's a whole other conversation. So I'm just dealing with assuming that Assuming that the law is not in effect today, what would the difficult text be? I'm saying that these are three of them. I don't think the first one is very strong, but the, the next two are ones that you do need to be able to understand and, and have responses to. So these are ones related to Jesus specifically. Then we get to another category of what we call perpetual ordinances. 
There are several verses in the Bible where it describes the law uh, as perpetual. That means it goes forever. Okay? If we're saying that the law does not hold sway today for Gentiles or Jews, then what are we saying about these verses? Okay, Exodus 29, 27-28 says, And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved in the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a what? Perpetual due. Perpetual due. Thank you. But the word perpetual means something that goes on forever. Perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people, and so on. So what this is saying is that in this offering, the uh, breast, or it's, it's called a wave offering, okay? So you have the breast and you have the thigh. These are going to go to the priests, right? So the priests don't have farms. The priests are doing the service of God. Essentially, a priest is a butcher, I mean, that's not the only thing they do, obviously, but that's a lot of what they do, is they're cutting up the, the meat in the prescribed way, waving stuff around in the air, putting stuff on a fire, and then they grill other parts of it and eat it, or they preserve it with salt, right? So these would be the portions that are for Aaron and his sons. That's another way to say the priests. So this is saying it's a perpetual ordinance. Now... The, the majority of these perpetual texts do refer to the Aaronic priesthood. However, we know that Christ's priest, priesthood, according to Hebrews 7, has superseded the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron's priesthood. So this is like Hebrews 7, 7.11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people receive the law. What further need would, would, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So this is the idea that there's a change in the law. Even though the law was a perpetual law, God's still able to change it. Now here's what's interesting. At the time this is written, the priests are still in the temple making their offerings. Jesus has already ascended into heaven, and He has now already offered Himself. But meanwhile, there are still priests on earth making these offerings. And so what He's saying is there's been a change in Torah. There's been a change in what is required for this system, and it has now culminated, and Jesus has fulfilled that, ro that role in a way that has brought an end to it for the earthly priests, the, the priests of Aaron's type now. Then you also have these here, Leviticus 23, 31, and 40. You shall not do any work. This is the Day of Atonement. Throughout your generations and all your dwelling places, it shall be, it is a statute forever. Yeah, there it is. Okay, it's just not the word perpetual. Is this a, okay, so this is on the Day of Atonement. You shall not do any work on the very day, for it is a day of atonement. Day, day of Atonement is not a time of feasting, but it's a day. Yeah. And on that day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you're not supposed to work. And he says, it's a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling place. It shall be to you a Sabbath. So even if it's not on a Saturday, uh, the Day of Atonement is considered a Sabbath. And then verse 41 you shall, this is a feast of booze, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. So on the strength of these texts, some have argued that the law is still in effect and that Christians should celebrate the festivals, or at least that Jews should still celebrate these festivals. May make a point on 31. It said, in all your dwelling places. So it's not temple or priesthood dependent. Are we going to drop the Jerusalem Council, Act 15? What's your point? Act 15, Jerusalem Council, uh, says that we wouldn't hold any of the Gentiles to anything other than what are the, there are three of them. Uh, no food sacrifice idols. Yeah, sexual immorality. Blood. No blood. No blood. Yeah. Or food strangled. Yeah. There are multiple interpretations of that. Okay? 
And uh, I've met some folks that have argued that the next line invalidates that, where it says you have Moses. They have Moses taught. What, what is it? Yeah. How's it go? For Moses is preached in the synagogues every Sabbath. Moses is preaching in the synagogues every Sabbath. So it's like he wasn't really saying you have to do away with that. I, I don't find that at all convincing, obviously, or else I wouldn't be on this side of it. I think it's very clear from the scriptures that Gentiles are not in any way obligated to keep the law because of not just because of Acts 15, but because of Galatians, Romans. It seems to be like the whole point of what Galatians and Romans is saying is that Gentiles can be brought into the family of God without circumcision, kosher restrictions, and holy days. Yeah, the, the typical Jewish markers. Jewish mar uh, thank you, Jewish identity markers. All right, so um, let's look at some other stuff here. Here's another thing that comes up, another subject, is that Sabbath is at creation, and as a result of that, is still in force for all people today. And so we see in Genesis 2, 2, it says, On the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work. And then it says very clearly in verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or separate because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then when we get to Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, in the Ten Commandments, this is the Sabbath ordinance. It says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and that you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female ser servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, in other words, because in six days God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, this is a forward argument in, in the sense that Exodus 20 is looking to creation and saying, because God did that, we are going to do that. It's, it's like looking forward. Well, I guess it's looking backwards at what God had done and then making a commandment going forwards. However, there are, there are plenty of folks, and I don't know what the Jewish position is on this, but uh, I know the Seventh-day Adventist that I've talked to has said that they always kept the Sabbath. Although it's not written, people were supposed to keep the Sabbath. And the people, like always. Before Torah came, from creation on, the Sabbath has always been... And not just, like, all people. All right, well, people back then, there were no Jews, obviously. Right. You know, so you have, like, Abraham, you know, say, say this is Abe right here. Right, so they would say people are already keeping the Sabbath, and then somehow it fell away from from remembrance, and so God renewed it at Sinai in giving of the of the Torah. And I don't know if that's a rabbinic thing or if that's Seventh Day Adventist or who where I heard that, but it's an argument from silence. So you know maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but I don't think you can use it to justify anything really. So. But I want you to be aware that that might come up. It's interesting, if you look at Deuteronomy 4, is it 4 or 5? Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are repeated, the Sabbath is attached with freedom from slavery. In that instance. Have you ever noticed that? What verse? It's, it's in Deuteronomy. Well, you have Exodus 20 is the first giving of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, right? So in the second giving of the law, you get the Ten Commandments again, repeated, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and it says there that you shall keep the Sabbath, yada, yada, yada. And then it gets to the part where it says, for, and instead of saying God rested on in creation, they say, for, you were slaves in Egypt. So in that interpretation, the Sabbath is a celebration of liberty from slavery. Because when you're a slave, you have to work every day. What is the Sabbath? It's a day off work. <laughs> you know, at the very basic level. The sign of freedom, right? Just uh, by the by, uh, the Exodus 20 uses remember the Sabbath day, and Deuteronomy 5 uses observe the Sabbath day. So the Jewish people get two different commandments out of the two different versions. <laughs> I tell you, it's, because it's, they love commandments. Well, you know, the thing is, too, they love 
They love the nuance, you know, the, yeah. the, little, the little details. I mean, you've, you've heard them go on about uh, the shape of the bet in Bereshit, yes, right? Yes. Uh, these, the these, <laughs> yeah, well, obviously the meaning is that before, so, so the bet is, is this letter right here. Hebrew goes in this direction. So the bet looks like this. Well, actually, it looks like that. It's got a little tail on it. And so they say, well, obviously, in, this is the word that begins in, like in the beginning. So before this, there was nothing. God created, there was, since the letter opens that way, there was nothing before the beginning. Right? It's a rabbinic interpretation of the... There's a whole thing about why the olive. The olive was an ox head, right? Yeah, and like how uh, it, it wanted to start the Torah, but then it gave its way to the babe <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, and then... Um, let me just throw this Ezekiel stuff up here because this is another very interesting place that talks a lot about this. And there's, there's actually an extended discussion of sacrificial offerings. All right, we'll bring that up for you. All right, so eschatological observance. What I mean by that is there are some places that are eschatological. There are prophecies about the end times. And they talk about observing the law or some aspect of the law. So the argument goes like this. If you're going to keep the law in the kingdom, so let's say Jesus comes back right here. That's the, uh, we'll call that the return. So then from here on, this is what we call the kingdom age. The point that they'll make is, well, if the Torah was reserved for all these centuries with the people of Israel, when Jesus comes back, when Messiah comes, we know he was a Torah observant Jew, then if the Torah is reestablished here, why wouldn't you keep it in between? Come on. Well, you don't. <laughs> so it's an interesting uh, point of view there. All right, so Zechariah 14. Uh, let's, let's just read that. Zechariah 14. Kyle, could you read that? 16 to 21. Yeah. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. All right, so that's part of the, the Torah, the Feast of Booths. Seven days, you take off, you, what, do you live in a booth or something? Yeah, you live in a booth, and it's, it's a festival. It's a, it's a happy time, celebrating the wilderness, right? The wandering in the wilderness? Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah, how God took care of his people in the wilderness wandering. And they celebrate the harvest of and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Keep going. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Oh, maybe we would translate that a retailer. <laughs> what, is, what is retail but purchasing one place and then selling it another place for a higher price, right? So a trader, somebody that's trading. Uh, there's an incident in, uh, is it Nehemiah? Where there were traders in, uh, during the Sabbath. And uh, they had to lock the city gates of Jerusalem. But anyhow, what we have here in Zechariah 14 is a prophecy that mentions God taking very seriously whether or not, his, not just his people, but that any nations are keeping the Feast of Booths. And then uh, also this business about sacrifices in verse 21 here. All who sacrifice may come and take of them, uh, take of these holy pots and, and bowls and whatnot, boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. So this is an eschatological observance of the Torah. What do you think? Oh, man, I'm ready. Go for it. What you got? Come on, the millennial kingdom. So you think? I think, yeah. All right. So you you would you would say that this right here is like the thousand years, and then that would come to an end. And in that thousand year period is where he's looking for this prophecy. So you have a new Torah period. Huh. Interesting. 
Is that, is that your position on it? That this is a new Torah position? And also in between too. But yeah, it, to me it's, because it, nobody argues before Jesus and it seems clear, seems clear from that it's in the millennium. Mm-hmm. So what we're arguing about is like in between. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't ruin my day if I was required to keep the Feast of Booze every year for all of eternity. <laughs> the Feast of Booze is a joyous occasion. It's wonderful. It memorializes something that God did with his people. And I wouldn't want to forget that. You know what I mean? And so maybe this is forever. Maybe it's for a thousand years. Maybe it's not eschatological. So those are three possibilities. And what? It's a week-long vacation. Come on. It is a week-long vacation. Not, there's an eighth day tacked onto it. There's an eighth day. It's almost as if God is like, you're going to need that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's look at the next one. Isaiah 56, 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my, hold fast my covenant, these... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for, the, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So this is also supposed to be doing something along the same lines as the last verse about kingdom Torah? Why are there sacrifices? So, yeah, this, this brings up the whole subject of sacrifices. We did actually see sacrifices in Zechariah 15 as well. And we're going to see them again in Ezekiel. Let me, let me just read out the last two, and then we'll think about all of them together as one unit. Because verse 20, this is 66-22, says, from, uh, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I I think this is a weak one because it doesn't actually say Sabbath observance. It's just using that as a marker of time. And that's how they measure a month is new moon to new moon and uh, that's how you measure a week is sabbath to sabbath so this one i think is 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 fairly weak and then we get to ezekiel 40 this whole section really goes from 40 to the end 40 to 48 has anybody ever read the 40s of ezekiel it's kind of like a vision it's a vision of a, of a new temple and he gets very specific in what he sees in this vision. And I would say most people, not everybody, but most people see this as, from chapter 40 to chapter 48, as an eschatological establishment or reestablishment of the temple, the sacrificial system, and preserving the, the Torah, the, the law. So Ezekiel 40, verse 38 says... There was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. And in the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. Um, So this is interesting. There's also a whole extended section I'm not going to read in 45 to 46 that talks about the sacrifices. Now, there are different ways to handle Ezekiel 40. Some people say it's the kingdom age. Some people say it's just related, just limited to the millennial part of the kingdom. And some people say that this was a, this was a prophecy, a conditional prophecy for the rebuilding of the temple. And Zerubbabel and Joshua, who were supervising the rebuilding of the temple, did not do it according to this pattern. So it, did, it, it was not followed. Like This was the pattern that God's prophet gave, and they did not follow the pattern, and that's why the glory of God did not come into the temple, for example. So that's another whole way of thinking about this. And then there are, the fourth option is, is that some people, I find this option less attractive, some people spiritualize this entire eight chapters. In fact, people have written entire books on it where everything is allegorical and refers to something else. And it's really talking about Jesus somehow. Well, there is, there is like a Jesus figure 
at one point. So I can see how you get that. But like everything relates to the ministry of Jesus or relates to other things. So these are options on Ezekiel 40. But I, uh, I want to just give you this one quote. This is from a website called lettucereason.org. It says, the problem is easily solved. Uh, maybe not this one in Ezekiel 40, but the problem in Zechariah and Isaiah 56 with these unspecified sacrifices right here, like where it says um, they'll come sacrifice and boil the meat and so on, that this is easily solved if we view them as commemorative rather than efficacious. So the sacrifices, they say, will be a memorial just as communion today is practiced looking back. They will not be for propitiation or efficacious. They will have no power to redeem, but are a reminder of what took place. I think it's important to realize, too, how ancient sacrifices worked. It was uh, an animal killed, but it's not like you put the entire animal on the fire. You cut the animal up. There are certain parts of the animal you do not burn, like the intestines, the nasty parts. Those you would put outside the camp. Then there would be certain parts of the animal or a certain part of the animal that you would burn. You would just turn it to smoke. And then you would have other parts that you would grill and you would eat. And it was a holy meal. This is what we call today a barbecue. <laughs> so what I'm saying is if there are sacrifices in the kingdom, it's not... Again, it's not going to ruin it by day because I like barbecue. And to do it in, in honor of God would be great. Or maybe you have another hypothesis. I guess my bias is that Jesus was a sacrifice. So I don't see yeah, yeah, we cannot, we cannot dispute that. There's no question about that. There's, there's a whole section in Hebrews that says what you just said there. Maybe I can see like offerings of like a joy offering or peace, like a love offering, um, but a sacrifice, especially if for through the verses we look for like a sin sacrifice. Right, that Ezekiel one. That just does not line up to the kingdom age. That doesn't line up with with immortal people. And that's why it's a difficult text. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it says specifically a burnt offering sin offering, and a guilt offering, right? And so you would want to opt for a interpretation of Ezekiel 40 through 48 that didn't see this as something that happens in the kingdom age. Well, I can't speak for the rest of the chapters because I'm not super familiar with them. The uh, text that you're referring to is, is worth reading out because, what is it, chapter 10? This is interesting. Hebrews 10, 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, the substance of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices offering you have not desired, and so on. For every priest, verse 11, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you think that the animal sacrifices ever granted anyone salvation? No. Like, forgiveness of sins so that you can be in the kingdom? Mm -hmm. well, yeah, so Jesus is the only sacrifice that matters. Right. Well, I wouldn't say that. I would say if you're living under Torah and you say, God, I'm not going to, not going to, like there's a, a law we're going to see in a bit here where if you, uh, if you mess around with your female slave, you got to give God a ram as a guilt offering, as, as punishment. If you, you can't just say, oh, well, I believe that, you know, this is all on a credit card and it's going to be paid by somebody else later. You, you know, you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't, like, defy that in the moment because so far as what God, what light God had given you, this was the system he put in place. Mm -hmm. Now, whether it was, you know, what makes it efficacious, what makes it actually work is the fact that God accepts it. It's not that it's equal to your life or something like that. I think so often we default into that point of view and it's not a biblical mindset at all. 
not, not that I'm disagreeing with what you two just said. I think you're right. Jesus' sacrifice is what actually pays for all sins backwards and forwards. Do you think that he accepts the, the bull or the ram bull? Or does he accept the fact that you accept that you've given it? <laughs> you see what I'm going I don't know, man. That's that's you're getting deep on me now. I don't know what God. That's like asking me the inner workings of God's mind. Isn't that like baptism, like in, like is the actual act of water, go, being immersed in water, like is no, no. Magic? We have a verse that says it's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. He says it's the uh, answer of a, a clean conscience, right? Uh, so, so it's like, yeah, this is this is the physical ordinance. But it's done in, in the right heart. And I don't think you can do either. If you, so like the physical ordinance done in the right heart. Take communion, for example. You take of the bread, you take of the wine, or if you're in the South, juice. That's a physical thing, right? And if you do it with the right heart, the physical thing in the right heart, it becomes a spiritual thing. Okay? But there are two ditches on either side of this narrow way. On one side, you have the person who says, I'm going to, like in the Godfather movie, he's in the church taking communion meanwhile his cronies are out murdering people from the other families and he thinks he's right with god because he's going through the the external ritual that's a ditch on one side ditch on the other side is is like the quakers we don't need communion we're beyond that we're just going to take the spiritual reality right isn't that exactly or like one of the main points the writer of the hebrews is, is making is that sacrifices year after year can never actually change your conscience. It's got to be God through Christ. You know, so I, that's what I take out of Hebrews, at least one of the things, is, is we're talking about two different ways God deals with sin. One is a temporal, earthly thing, and one is an eternal, heavenly thing. Mm-hmm. And one doesn't cancel, like Jesus' sacrifice doesn't cancel the, the animal sacrifices. That's why, in my opinion, they're still there in the kingdom. But you can't have uh, the animal sacrifices without the greater sacrifice of Jesus. Otherwise, it's pointless. Yeah. I will also point out that in my, uh, my essay, The Kingdom is Too Jewish, mm-hmm. uh, one, of the, one of the criticisms that I point out in that work is that a lot of Catholic Christians had against the kingdom was that people who believed in it wanted a Jewish future so to speak, where there would be sacrifices and there would be marriage and there would be all these kinds of things. And that's what they singled out as reason why they couldn't believe in the kingdom at all as a literal future reality and rather thought of the kingdom as a spiritual reality and applied it to the church. So this, this issue is not sort of just an appendix in the back of systematic theology is something that has a a long history to it and is worth considering but that's it for today thanks for tuning in everyone this now rounds out our 24 part theology class which we've been doing since january 3rd of this year and it's now july so the seven months of theology if you made it this far congratulations and at the same time you probably get the impression that we have only scratched the surface. So, but we had to, I have to cut it off somewhere, right? In the meantime, while this class has been running, I've been busy recording and preparing lots of fresh new content on a whole host of other subjects for your edification, education, and consideration. I've done a number of interviews, and I've got several more lined up in the near future. So I'm looking forward to putting them out in the next weeks and months. But before closing out, I did want to interact with some feedback that recently came in from our last episode, Theology Part 23 on the New Covenant. Brian writes in, Dear Sean, hopefully I can receive the same words of kindness that you gave Chuck at the end of of this episode, for I too travailed listening to this, knowing full well that I would disagree. Earlier on in the lecture, you were juxtaposing the Old and New Covenants. You mentioned that offering sacrifices at the temple is not part of the New Covenant. Please indulge me. Uh, Then Brian goes on to quote Jeremiah 33, which he says is a new covenant text. Uh, I'm not really sure why he says that's a new covenant text. I uh, I don't think I saw any any statements about being in the new covenant there. Uh, It seems to be an eschatological text for sure, and it definitely touches on this whole idea of how can there be Levitical priests in the kingdom? 
which we, we touched on a little bit in this episode here, and is certainly an interesting subject, but it, it does not at all prove the case that the new covenant is the same thing as the old covenant. I think, uh, I think it's hard for me to go along with that interpretation. If the new covenant just is the old covenant internalized, it doesn't seem that new to me. And it's really hard to make sense of quite a few statements found throughout the New Testament, uh, not only in Galatians, Romans, Hebrews, but also in First and Second Corinthians about the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit, and just a lot of clear contrasts between the Old and the New Covenant. So um, I realize that's probably not at all a satisfying answer to Brian, but... I, I did want to gauge a little bit. I, I don't have a great deal of time considering um, this is the middle of the summer and I've got a lot of events I'm involved in to fully engage in this subject. But I did want to mention to the interested listener that I recently came across a good debate on this whole subject, although it focused on the Sabbath, and that was Steve Gregg versus Doug Batchelor. And I've got a link to that in the show notes to, for this episode, Steve, Steve Gregg versus Doug Batchelor debating whether or not Christians today should keep the Sabbath. And Steve makes some great points there that I didn't make about the word olam and some of these other situations. Of course, a debate is a much longer format than a single seminar, uh, which this episode very much was a seminar, not a lecture, where we were working together to collaborate and figure out what what the Bible's saying on these different things. Uh, Daniel writes in as well, and he says, I have to respectfully disagree with part of what has been said here. Yes, I am in total agreement that we are not saved by the Torah, but by faith in the blood of Jesus. The thing is that people like the Messianic Jews or Hebrew Roots, or even a couple of non-denominational Christians that obey the Torah know this. People often say we are in a new covenant, but don't even know what are the terms of the new covenant. And the Torah or law is part of the new covenant. So we cannot be part of the covenant if we don't know the law of Yah in our minds and our hearts. Uh, once again, Daniel, I would, I would come against that. I think the whole point of saying it's a new covenant and it's not like the old covenant, which the people break, is that it is different. Jesus said it was new wine and new wineskins. And he did bring to bear new, a, a whole new way of living. Uh, I think in many ways it doesn't contradict, especially the moral code of Torah, but it certainly goes far beyond what was required in those days. It goes on to make a point about Acts 15, uh, which I had actually mentioned in this episode, where he says that they weren't criticizing observing the law, but the oral law, known today as the Talmud, as a yoke, that, that was impossible to follow. And what Dan, how Daniel interprets this is that uh, the commandment to just abstain from these four or so restrictions was a starting point, and that eventually, according to 15, Acts 15.21, they, through the reading of the Law of Moses, Sabbath by Sabbath, they would come to observe the rest of it. Daniel, I do not read it that way at all. I think just, I would challenge anyone that's on the fence about this, just go ahead and read Acts 15. Uh, you've got Judaizers, that is, uh, Christians who are trying to convince Gentile Christians to get circumcised and keep the law. And these people have a sharp disagreement, a strong opposing position to the Apostle Paul. Uh, they bring it down to Jerusalem, and the church decides in favor of Paul that Gentiles do not need to get circumcised. They do not need to keep the full law. Instead, they have to keep a series of minimal requirements, no fornication, sacrifice, uh, meat sacrifice to idols, uh, no eating blood or animals have been strangled. Those very basic, you know, it doesn't even say don't eat pork. Where's the pork? Where's the get circumcised and, you know, become part of the covenant people? I mean, look, there, this is, there's a newness that even James in Acts 15 can recognize and agree to as far as Gentiles. I think the understanding regarding Jews, whether Jews needed to keep the law, did take a little bit longer to figure out. And that's why I lean so heavily on Hebrews when it comes to my theology for what the Hebrew people should do and how they should relate to God. But uh, that, that wasn't really 
something that I focused on in this episode. It was more the question of Gentiles and whether Gentiles need to keep the law. And uh, and this is an issue I'm, I'm willing to, to consider more. I, I don't believe that very many Restitutio listeners are interested in it. I know that there are a couple that are very vocal and certainly appreciate their feedback. Uh, but uh, I did put out a challenge a while ago for a debate I haven't received very many responses. So look, if you are interested in debating this subject on Restudio or even just recording a very one-sided interview and then I can record a one-sided interview with the opposing view, uh, I think that would be great. Uh, check out. Uh, I would also say check out the Steve Gregg and Doug Batchelor debate because I think it's worth uh, seeing a lot of these things being talked about in a much more extended uh, in a much more extended time frame. And let's circle back to this issue in the future uh, as, you know, I listen to the other side a little bit more and as we can find people that are interested in talking about this subject. As far as Converge, I know a lot of you are probably tired of me talking about Converge, but hey, it's coming up. We're super psyched. We've got 322 people signed up so far and there's a late registration available currently. I believe it's about 20 or so dollars upcharge where you can still get into some housing. The dorms are actually all full, and uh, we also have a whole bunch of people, over 100 people, in fact, staying off campus at different hotels and campsites and that sort of thing. Uh, but we do have 20 remaining townhouses. Uh, so that's, uh, that's accommodations for four people. And you don't have to necessarily register with three others. You could just register yourself for a townhouse and we'll house you with folks. Um, and that might be a great way to meet people uh, if you're interested in that. Or if you have a group, uh, just all register around the same time. This way we'll know that you're together. But we're also running up against our drop dead deadline, which is either Monday or Tuesday of, of next week. So either this is July 22nd or 23rd. 2019. Uh, that would be the final deadline, again, after which you cannot register for this event. So hey, if you're thinking about it, and you're like, oh, Sean, I missed the deadline. I'm so sad. I'm not going to hang out with three, 322 other biblical Unitarians in the Midwest. Fear not, for there is grace and mercy and a little bit of an upcharge. So uh, we might call that personal responsibility. We would love to, we'd love to see you there if you can be there. And uh, I think it's going to be a really great time. We're going to have powerful praise, lots of Bible teaching, lots of free time, lots of activities for kids or athletically minded people. And uh, I think it's just going to be a wonderful little taste of the kingdom to come. So please come and participate in that if you're interested. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Next week, we've got a new interview, so stay tuned for that. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.